Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast and I'm your host Jerry Alexander. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll like the content and find it useful. Our aim is to give private investors the knowledge and insights of investing directly into commercial property. We have been in this space for just over 15 years and still feel we're only really just getting started. But during that time we've worked on a number of different projects and we learned a few things that worked for us and a few moves that haven't. I certainly don't know everything about this fast market. However, some of these tips I'm going to share with you in this episode have served us pretty well in developing our portfolio of commercial buildings. We're based in the UK, but I'm conscious that some of our listeners are not in the UK. So I try to make sure that when I share ideas such as this, they're universal and they should work where you're based. It does go without saying, of course, I'm not offering specific advice and you will need to check out your strategy with professionals in your local area. But remember, you need to learn about the context of what's going on and also how to interpret what the professionals tell you. What I'm trying to share is our experiences and those of our guests, of course, so that you can try to interpret what's going on in your part of the world so you can have more intelligent conversations with those professionals and sometimes challenge what they're telling you. Right, let's get into the episode. I want to share with you some of the things that I look for in identifying good opportunities for CMO buildings. That's the commercial multiple occupancy model. And as we begin to move on from the major disruption caused by this pandemic, there are going to be big opportunities for those who offer flexible space on more flexible terms. Many occupants are reviewing their leases. So that's those in more traditional contracts, lease space, maybe five or ten year leases. And as those are coming up for renewal, they're seeking flexible terms. They may be downsizing or at least sidestepping to give themselves the ability to be more nimble as we progress through the coming years. They don't want to lock themselves into another five or ten year lease. Now don't get me wrong, these leases don't all finish on Monday next week. They finish over many days and many years because people sign them at different times, don't they? So they trickle out. And the feed is there and it's going on. And this is what happened during the financial crisis. We saw a big shift over to our type of offering back in 2009, 10 and 11. When those leases came to an end, people were looking for something more flexible. If you're sold on the idea of creating some multi-let properties, then this list that I'm going to go through might help you get there a bit quicker. Now, CMO properties might not be everybody's cup of tea, but if it's something you fancy learning more about, then listen on. These are effectively some of the things that tick the boxes for me. The list could be really long, but I've tried to keep it to a nice round 10. So it's about looking for the telltale signs of existing properties. So we're not talking about new build, we're talking about established buildings. But they may be poorly run or partially redundant. 
and they've got the potential to be refurbished to suit multiple clients. So in no particular order, here's 10 items that are on my checklist that might help you spot buildings that are good for CMOs. The first one is, and let's start with a fairly obvious one, does the building already have an existing mix of tenants? In other words, does the property actually operate as a multiple occupancy building already? It just might not appear so to start with, and it certainly may not seem the building's been run particularly efficiently or in the best way to maximise the opportunity. The majority of multi-let buildings that we've developed already had a number of customers in them. The opportunity was in the fact that they weren't being run particularly well and the occupancy wasn't particularly good. And this leads me on to that second point. Does the property actually have some vacant space? And that's a great question to ask agents or property listing companies or indeed landlords. Because if it has a partial income, that means by default there's vacant space, which is your opportunity to add value. Some people, some investors, particularly passive investors, will look at a vacant space in a property that maybe has some occupied space and say, that's a risk and a liability which I may not want to invest in. And to some degree, of course, it is a bit of a liability. But maybe for you and I, the vacant space is really the opportunity because that's how we can add value and be active in our investing. So our job is then find a way of creating or changing that space to suit the market demand. The currently occupied space is, of course, an opportunity to service some debt when you're buying the building. And you could argue a proof of concept because someone has already let some space. It's just that maybe it's not being configured correctly or marketed correctly. It could be, of course, the market isn't there and you have to try and work out what the market is and adjust the building to suit. Ultimately, having partial income does benefit you in many ways, not least, as I say, because it gives you an opportunity to leverage the income to buy the property in the first place, while still giving you the opportunity to be an active investor with the vacant section. So here's the third one. I look out for properties that are currently being promoted by commercial agents. Because sometimes those guys aren't very focused on specific multi-let buildings. In fact, sometimes it seems to me they don't really understand them. Only I've found that frequently multi-let buildings managed by commercial agents aren't as efficient as they can be or could be. And there's very often an opportunity there for you to improve the occupancy and the value of the offer. So actually, when I found buildings that are managed by commercial agents, that's actually a big tick for me. Because I know that in the past, I've found opportunity there. The fourth point, if you do manage to get a copy of the profit and loss, so it's digging a bit deeper, or the cash flow for a property that is perhaps already multi-let, that's going to give you an opportunity to compare and evaluate whether the current market rate for that property is actually correct. So for instance, if the property is fully occupied, that doesn't mean there's an opportunity for us to grow that income. We've actually bought some buildings with high occupancy, in fact, one 100% occupied, but actually they were at the wrong price point and the market changed. The offer in the property was valued more or was of more value, but the previous owner hadn't recognised that. And they hadn't quite got out of first gear in terms of their pricing and they hadn't caught up with the market rate. And 100% occupancy may mean that actually your pricing's a bit low because you've not perhaps got to that point where there's that law of diminishing returns, that little tipping point where the price, that sweet spot, where the price is high enough that you keep customers, but you're making a good margin. I'm not saying that's going to always be the case, 
but myself and students I've worked with have found great value in looking at profit and loss and balance sheets because hidden in there sometimes, when you look at the competition and you work out where the market should be, hidden in there sometimes is real opportunity. Interestingly, that might even mean that you don't really need to do any physical development of the property. You don't have to spend any money on the actual asset itself to develop it out. It could just be that you need to change the offer or the price point. And I've seen that done a few times to great effect. One building I remember we purchased, we hardly spent anything on the actual physical building. But by changing the offer and watching what the market was wanting, we managed to double the income. So less investment, but a good return. One of the serendipities of doing this podcast is that when I'm working with students in commercial property, it forces me to think about what we do and to try and articulate that as well as I can. And hopefully that's coming across. I'm trying to simplify things. It's also made me consciously show my working, I guess, hypothesis on how to analyse the market. So I had a process of working that out in my head, but I hadn't really put it down on paper and tried to explain that to people. So I've kind of forced myself to develop that market analyzer model, which I've mentioned before, and it's free to download on our website. And at some point, I will record a video on how to actually use it effectively, but basically just treat it as a picture or a map, if you will, of how the market can be divided up. And it's about identifying which part of the market is being serviced well and which isn't, where the gaps are. So for instance, by taking an example of industrial space, it might be in your target area, there's lots of industrial space, but it's all at 50,000 square foot sheds or larger. And some of it's unoccupied and they can't find tenants. Maybe not the best choice right now because I know industrials do really well. But actually, you know, in that particular example, there may be a strong market for units of up to 3,000 square feet not over 50,000. And the agent might tell you there's lots of vacant industrial space in your target area, so don't bother buying it. But actually, it's not about the product or the sector. It's about the size of the space that's available. And maybe the agent hasn't quite worked that out. Now, maybe I'm being disingenuous. Many of them will work that out, but they might not articulate that to you. Simple, really, though, when you're thinking about it. Anyway, Pop onto the show notes, you'll see a link to our website where you can download that market map or market analyzer. It does, of course, go without saying you need to carry out some good competitor analysis to actually be able to use that and to get to grips with what's happening in your target area. But anyway, let's move on to the fifth one. Another tick in the box for me is finding buildings that are already subdivided or could be readily subdivided into reasonable sized spaces. Ideally, those spaces would not be identical to each other in size because you kind of need a bit of variation of sizes so that you can satisfy demands from different types of occupants because you might have somebody who wants a space just for themselves and you might want somebody who wants space for 20 people. You need to have variation there. And the thing about subdivided properties is that often landlords are seeking single occupants for these buildings and they can't find them because there's not many single occupants who want multiple subdivided space. So those properties can often be viewed as problem properties, but actually for us, they can be ideal. So the sixth thing that I look for is buildings that are hard to look for. And what I mean by that is buildings that are not marketed well and they're very difficult to actually locate. They've limited or no internet presence, a sign that maybe fell down three years ago and is buried in the hedges now, and no real presence. And by default, that does, of course, mean they're going to be harder to find. 
And that does mean you may not find them on the internet. You may need to get off your backside and get out and drive the streets and the industrial parks and look for properties that are difficult to locate. And I mean this more from the point of view of potential tenants. I know it sounds a bit odd, but purely marketed buildings can be really good opportunities because potential clients can't find them, the occupancy tends to be lower, and as long as you can build up a marketing plan and strategy to reach those clients, then you can fill the building. So that can be a great opportunity, ones that are difficult to find or basically not marketed very well. The seventh one that I do look for is these opportunities need to have a certain amount of scale for me. And as our business has grown, so has our investment criteria. And one of those criteria is finding buildings that are of a reasonable size. Because a small building will use a disproportionate amount of cost to run it compared with a larger building where those costs are shared out over a larger space or with more clients. That doesn't mean your first property has to be a large one, by the way. There's still something to be said for starting small and learning as you go. But as you do grow and you look for more properties, a certain amount of scale can help. The eighth one for me, which I've mentioned a few podcasts, is I always look for windows. Customers like natural light, so that's a big tick for me. I need to make sure that it's going to be possible to give customers natural light. Now, of course, it does depend on what sector you're going for. And if that sector is more maybe industrial or maybe retail orientated, then the windows are not necessarily for natural light. They're there for a different purpose. It might be a shop window, display window, that sort of thing, for display purposes. But it might just be it's a front office for an industrial building. And the rest of it is a shed with no windows. But if you're looking for different types of space to let out, to offer to different types of clients, perhaps offices or appointment only type space, then these really need some natural light. So it's just another one of those ticks that I go through on that list. You're not going to find all of these things in each of these buildings, but as many of them as you can leads to a higher probability that this building's actually going to have good potential. So the ninth one is about access points. Is the building served with one entrance or multiple entrances? And in of itself, it's not a deal breaker, but I've found a certain number of access points gives you more flexibility, particularly during development. So if you phase your works, which is what we tend to do, so we can reflect the inquiries in our later phases and what we develop out, having multiple entrances means that you can allow clients to access the building through one point and phase that area and then move on to the next phase and your workers and tradespeople can use a different entrance. Not always possible, but it is handy when that can happen. And also it means that later on, if your model needs to change slightly so that your occupants have their own individual access, then that's possible. So the last one I've got on this list is about the service locations. And I know I've said that on a very recent podcast, all about services, but maybe it's worth bringing up again. Does the property have good communal service locations? So are they located sensibly for area optimization, Or can they at least be moved to central areas? Having a service core with toilets and tea points and that sort of thing on the perimeter of a building can lead to less efficiency because you'll have to have corridors leading to those services for everybody. If they're more centralised, you have the ability to make your space more efficient because you don't need corridors to get out to the external areas of the building for people to access those service points. So it's kind of important. Again, it's not critical, but you really need to look for a number of these things when you're going through your checklist. So these are my top 10 green lights, as it were, for checking out potential CMO buildings. 
And whilst individually they're all reasonably important, you're not going to find a building with all of these. However, you do need to find a building with quite a number. Just it improves your chances. There's no point struggling with a building that doesn't quite work when you could wait and find one that really does. And I know when you're starting out, you find something and you get emotionally attached to that, but you really need to be a bit more ruthless. And there are, of course, other factors which are more personal to you and to me. I mean, my unique investing criteria, such as locations, um, possibly a listed status, or a specific minimum size, and other factors that I've shared before are pertinent to what I look for, and you're going to have something else. But the 10 that I've included here really should work for all of us. These were all for some people who are looking to invest in property, which is predominantly what this podcast is for. But for those of you who want to move faster, there is another approach, which is that, of course, of rent to rent. In fact, lots of industry leaders in flexible space, in particular serviced office space, work on a rent to rent basis. They actually rent floors or whole buildings, and then they subdivide those into smaller units and then sublet them out to clients or tenants. Brands such as WeWork, IWG or Regis often rent space and then sublet. They don't actually own it. And that's why they can get rapid growth. And I know with conversations with colleagues recently in and around London, right now during this disruption, the market demand for flexible space is going up. And these guys, these operators are looking for space actively right now and competing for it because they know what's coming. So on the other hand, some landlords are struggling because they've been given back lease space. They thought that might have been renewed. They thought maybe the corporate client or the large occupier they had in that space was just going to renew. But they've actually decided they're going to move out or they're going to review their strategy and they're looking for possibly a downsize or they're just looking for a different type of space requirement on a more flexible offer. So as I say, a lot of the operators who tend to be rent-to-rate models right now are competing for these spaces in and around London, um, I've learned from speaking to colleagues. And that means that those landlords who have vacant space with not many customers looking around have an option of bringing a flexible operator to run that space. It may be just completely leased to them or there may be a management agreement in place to try and get some occupancy in their building. This is from the landlord's point of view. But also what they're trying to do is they're trying to get some footfall through their building. So those rent-to-rent tenants or management contracts will allow them to bring in smaller companies into their building. And from the landlord's point of view, by you or that operator providing that flexible offering, it gives them the benefit of having these smaller businesses that in time will work as a feeder. Because some of those companies will grow. Some of them are fast-growing companies. And potentially they'll want to move into more of a traditional lease space. And they could take that space in the building the landlord has. So often in places like Manhattan or, or London or some of the larger cities where you've got very large buildings, serviced operators will be in there. And they'll maybe take a floor or two floors, several thousand feet. And by being in there, it's a benefit to the landlord as well. So let's quickly summarise the points that I made about investors. What sort of things do I look for? So number one, does the building have an existing mix of tenants? Number two, does the property have some vacant space? Could be an opportunity in that. Number three, is the property currently looked after by a commercial agent? Now, not all commercial agents are bad, 
but I have bought buildings where a commercial agent was involved and it gave me lots of opportunity. Four is the property actually let out at current market rates. It could be 100% occupied, but there's a reason it's 100% occupied. It's because they're renting out at too low a rate. Is it outdated? Is the model outdated? Is the pricing outdated? The fifth one is, is the building already subdivided or easy to subdivide? Makes things easier for us and it may reduce the cost of the building because for some single occupants, actually, that's not a great thing to have. The sixth one is, is the building hard to find? Will potential clients not be able to locate the building right now because it's currently not marketed very well? And that could be an easy fix for you. The seventh one is, is there an opportunity to scale? Something that's important for me. The eighth one is, funny as it sounds, is there lots of natural light? Are there windows? The ninth one, is there more than one access point? Again, not critical, but it is another tick in the box. And then the last one on this list was about the service locations. Are they in an efficient location? Can they be moved to a more efficient location so you can maximise your square footage in this property? So there you go, a quick summary of some of the things that I look out for when trying to work out if a building is going to work well for the commercial multiple occupancy model or CMO model. There's lots of other stuff, of course, but these points help in those early stages of just trying to identify potential targets. Now, when you've gone through that, the research has to begin properly. And that might mean actually still working on the laptop or the desktop, but paying for some of those online services where you can maybe find out details about ownership, title, planning, classification, these sorts of things. But as I say, this is where you may have to start putting time and perhaps money into your search. But at least by going through those 10 checkpoints, you can identify whether this project is a potential goer or not. Then you can start getting into the detail. And this episode really has been aimed at giving you just a quick few tools for that research. I hope it serves to give you enough context to go and find a building or a few buildings. At least identify some that need further research. So best of luck with that search. It's not the easiest thing to do, of course. If it was, then there would be very few opportunities left. And remember, one of the advantages of the commercial property market is it does seem as clear as mud. There's lots of chances for good buildings to be hidden in plain sight. If you enjoyed the episode or indeed any other episodes, please take a moment to leave a review. Or if you're active on social media, just share the episode. Let people know what we're up to, what you're listening to. We'd really appreciate that. Let's build a bigger network of like-minded people who are investing in commercial property because collectively we can all learn how to get better and better at this game. Thanks again for being one of our fabulous listeners. We appreciate every single one of you. Have a great week in commercial. We'll speak again very soon. You've been listening to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. 